It's supposed to be spring break, but it's not spring yet. Does anyone actually miss the sun? Because I miss the sun. Um, I was in cold Iowa again last week and it was like 20 degrees. So I've had my fair share of winter and I'm over it. Uh, good morning. I hope that you have had a wonderful week so far. Um, if you are watching online and or in person, I have a couple announcements. Last week, you'll notice the podcast was not up on the website. That's due to the audio. When I would upload it, um, it just, you couldn't hear Shannon speaking. So something was, was bad with the audio last week. The YouTube video is up. Um, on YouTube. Some of you said that you couldn't find it. So when you go to Mary Shannon's website, uh, our YouTube channel, you might, you need to make sure that you're checking both playlists, um, but it should just pop up as week 22. So it is there. I have double checked and confirmed it's there. So um, if you are missing that, go back. I'll also post it on Facebook right after I'm done um, with announcements just so that you have access to it. But I promise you that it is there. Um, it just might be a little hard to find for some reason. Secondly, um, Shannon is gearing up for another busy week. Um, so she is going to be heading out to the East Coast. Uh, which is now like a three-hour time change. So uh, this week, if you could just spend some time in prayer for her, uh, that would be amazing. I know what it's like to be with her and travel, and for her, it is exhausting, even though um, it's something that she loves doing. So she's heading to um, Massachusetts. Is that right? Maryland. Wow. My history teacher would not be proud of me right now. <laughs> Uh, Maryland, and then she has two in Pennsylvania. So something things you could pray for is just safe travels, that there's no bad weather, um, that she gets there safely. Rest um, and recuperation from when she comes back because she'll be gone all week. She'll get back, you flying back on Monday? Flies back Monday, has to study, and then has a full week of studying and teaching. So just praying that she will have some rest. Um, and also just for her health, that she doesn't get sick, and that she will um, maintain mental strength. That God's glory would continue to touch others through her story. Um, praying for her as she shares some difficult times in her life, and that God would receive that glory. And also just praying for the women who attend these events. The women that attend the event is different upon every church, so there may be a couple hundred up to a thousand people. So if you could just pray for those women's hearts this week um, as they prepare to receive the message from her and a couple other people as well, that would be awesome. Um, you can also go ahead and check and see. I know there is a couple of these coming to Arizona. So if you want to check out Aspire, you can go to aspirewomensevents.com um, and you can see events. Also tell your friends and family, if you have friends and family that don't live here, they have them all around the country um, and they might be interested in seeing where Shannon's going to be. She's going to be in Ohio and in Indiana and Kentucky later this year. And then in the Midwest, she'll be in Wisconsin and two in Minnesota. So share with your friends and family if you know some women who are in need of a really great night of worship and learning about the Lord. Second, uh, as a reminder, if you have high schoolers, there's no high school Bible study this week. They're on their second week of their spring break. Um, I know that there's some spring, spring breakers uh, that are gone. That's why it's a little bit low here today, which is totally fine. Uh, but Bible study for high school will be back next week. So they will resume. Your spring break will be April 4th and 5th. So if you want to write that down or take out your phone, take a picture of this, um, so you remember, or put it in your calendar. We will not have Bible study Tuesday, April 4th and Wednesday, April 5th. So we'll just do a one week spring break. Um, and I'll make sure to announce that next week as well. And then I'll be posting this online today for those of you who are asking about spring break. So we will not have 
uh, study on April 4th and 5th, just a one week off. And then we will finish it out. Um, after we come back from spring break, we will talk about, um, how the rest of the year is going to look before we go into summer break. So I'll be giving you some of those dates in a few weeks as well. That is all I have for you. I hope you have a wonderful day. Enjoy the Daniel, the book of Daniel and Shannon. Yay, Taylor. Okie doke. Well, here we are at the 70 weeks. Um, I am sorry about the audio. If, if I get a chance um, at some point, not this week, because I'm going to be crazy, what I'll try to do is um, maybe sit, up, sit down at my desk and just talk through that sermon again uh, and do the audio. It may not be exactly the same, but it would, it, you would get all the information of me just talking through my notes. And so if we do that, I'll tell you, and we'll put that up there because people listen from all over. And so I don't want them to miss that section. And you know what? Stuff happens. We just make up for it, right? So it, it'll work out. Um, last week, we talked about uh, Daniel chapter nine, and we focused on Daniel's prayer. What an amazing prayer it was, a prayer of humility and repentance. Um, he is realizing that the time of exile is coming to a close, and he was uh, praying to God, um, seeking restoration for Israel. Do you remember that? And do you remember the key word that I pointed out in that prayer last week? Righteousness, righteous, uh, to be in right relationship, to do right by. And we talked about that Daniel was constantly pointing out that characteristic of God, that God, you are righteous. You have always remained in good relationship with us, but we have not to you. And because, and because of that, to us, there is open shame. And then he broke it down, the most beautiful example, I believe, of the justice and mercy of God coming together in love and right relationship. And he basically said this, that the calamity that was brought on, you were righteous in bringing the calamity because that was acting in right relationship to us. Because of our covenant relationship of the Ten Commandments, the law, that was a conditional covenant, and with that covenant came curses and blessings because it was going to be them living in relationship with God for the world to see that would bring blessing to the world. So it was very important, and they knew that if they did not live according to that, there were calamities coming their way. It's like a parent saying, if you do this, this is the consequence you're going to see. They knew. And so to be in right relationship with them meant that you do what you say you're going to do and you bring that consequence. And that's what he did. And Daniel was saying, you were absolutely righteous in doing that. But then he also said, because he knows that a God who brings the consequence to the sin is the same God who also gives promises and covenants of restoration. And so now he turns and he says, you were right in bringing calamity. You were righteous in bringing this calamity. But now I'm asking you, God, because you are righteous, keep your promise, forgive and restore. And he is asking that of God. And so as he's praying, who then comes and visits him? 
Gabriel. And I just want to point out some of the stuff we talked about. Um, it says, while I was confessing and pleading, Gabriel came to me in swift flight. Uh, during the time of evening sacrifice, we talked about the fact that Daniel's clock is still on the Jerusalem clock, right? You can take Daniel out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of Daniel. After all these years, this is who he is. He is um, committed to uh, the law and to his God. Even after serving in Babylon all these years, he is still keeping his clock according to that covenant relationship. And it says that um, Gabriel said, at the beginning of your plea, I was sent. And it reminds you of Psalm 139. It says, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it. And then we talked about the fact that he said, Daniel, you are greatly what? Loved. And when you're dealing with this kind of thing, this timeline that we're going to be looking at, and really just trying to understand it all and grasp it all. And he says, you are to consider and I will bring you understanding. So consider is like a wrestling with, and I believe Daniel is going to wrestle with this timeline um, over years and years. And I think he's going to teach it and people are going to continue to tally it and wrestle with it year after year. So in the midst of all that, um, trying to figure it out and, and to imagine what it is the future hold and what is God going to do with his people? What is the most important thing we need to understand? <laughs> you are greatly loved. That is what I want you to hear. And so I told you last week, or maybe I did, I don't know, I teach it three times, but at some point I said to the gals, listen, if I'm wrong, which I absolutely could be, about how I see the end playing out, and there is a secret rapture, and then a seven years of tribulation, and, an, uh, and all of the left behind stuff. Let me just tell you what, when I get called up in the air, I'm going to look at you and go, my bad. Okay. Because if that's the case, I'm out, right? I'm on the winning team. You're on the winning team. And at the end of the day, we're in the palm of his hand. He hears our prayers from before they even reach our tongue. Uh, he knows our concerns. And guess what? You are greatly loved, okay? I love you and you love me and he loves us. So if I make you mad today, just know that. I love you and you do love me. Even if you don't agree with you and you think I'm a heretic, okay, whatever. You love me, you know you do. And God loves us. All right, and so as we get into the 70 weeks, how many of you read the King James Version a few times this week? Good for you. Awesome. Y'all are A-plus students. I want to start with Alistair Begg's uh, quote that I think is so awesome. If you've ever listened to him, I, I enjoy his preaching so much. And, and we don't agree, by the way, on, on everything. He holds it lightly, but he said this about teaching the 70 weeks. He says, in what follows, and I wish I could do it with his accent, in what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. 
What I am now to unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. That's awesome, right? Uh, one of the commentaries I read said that the, all of the, this section of Scripture is the swamp of Old Testament criticism. And um, I'm going to tell you kind of the three main thoughts, but you need to understand that within three of them, there is so much difference within each one that it, blow, it, it actually exhausts you to study it. And so, but let's start like this. First, I'm going to pray and ask Jesus to help me. And then I want you to imagine um, after that, how Daniel really felt as a whole when he heard this vision. Lord, thank you so much for today. God, I pray that you would help me teach honestly beyond my wisdom. That, Lord, that I would teach in a way, I don't even know if what I'm teaching is absolutely 100% the way it is, Lord. I'm just doing my best on what I see, and, and I think that's what we all do. And so, God, I, I pray that I would keep the main things the main things. And if there's an overall point that I have not even found, I pray you give it to me as I teach. And, and God, I pray that even when we get down to the nitty gritty of this timeline, that we would realize that and glorify you that you do have a timeline. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful, God, that you have a timeline and a plan and that it's going to come to an end. And that you are exalted right now at the right hand of God the Father. And one day you will return to set up your kingdom and you will restore creation to its original design, us and the physical world. And I'm so thankful for that. God, I can't, I just can't ima imagine. I, I love to daydream about what that would be like when the world is in right relationship with you and right relationship with each other. Everything is restored to its original righteousness, and I look forward to that. And so, God, as I fumble through teaching something I'm not even uh, fully, I don't even fully understand, please, Lord, don't let me confuse them any more than they already are. So I just love you so much. Um, I thank you for the opportunity, even though it's difficult. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So imagine being visited by an angel for telling a promise of a future king who will liberate your people and usher in a new kingdom free from the crushing burden of sin, shame, and guilt. But then, in this promise, it turns dark because in the midst of this promise, you also hear about war and desolation and, to be honest, the end of everything you know as a religion. And this prophecy is wrapped in an exact time frame so that your people can know exactly when all of this would go down. I want to read it to you, these three verses. Um, I just said four last week. I can't remember what I said. Um, but it's 24 through 27. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And I'm going to use the King James Version. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. 
want you to notice something I didn't even put in my notes. I just noticed it right now. Where it says to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. Okay? So so the first couple of promises are, are in regards to um, basically putting an end to sin. And then the second two, the reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, is all about being put in right relationship. So dealing with sin and then putting in right relationship. Okay? Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate." even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. <clears throat> you got it? <laughs> you understand it? Okay, well, so the time period that we are given for the entire prophecy is what? 70 weeks, okay? 70 weeks of years, okay? Now, this idea was introduced in Leviticus 25.8. Turn there. I want you to see it. It was introduced to them by God in the law um, where God is talking about a Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. Okay? And this is how he... This is how he uses it. I'm going to let you get there because you need to see it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, oh, Leviticus 25.8. Okay, he's talking about, you know, there will be a, a Sabbath every seven years, but then uh, in the 49th year, there's going to be a year of Jubilee, a special celebration. That's what he's talking about. This is how he tells them to figure it out. Verse 8. You shall count seven weeks, or some of your say Sabbaths. So if you have King James, it would say Sabbaths, which basically how many Sabbaths? There's a Sabbath a week, okay? So you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall, shall give you 49 years. So he showed us how to do this holy math, okay? And then it says, Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, okay? It shall be a year of jubilee. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. But I wanted you to see, um, basically... That it is God that set up this kind of math, this uh, weeks of years. And so he had said, you know, on 
seven, what did he say? Seven weeks of years. So 49 years, there is going to be the year of Jubilee. And on the seventh month, the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you would blow the trumpet. All debts would be forgiven. This is in the year of Jubilee. All debts would be forgiven. The prisoners would all be set free. The land would get a, a year of rest. And the land would be given back to their rightful owner. So let's say they had to sell off part of their heritage or their land because of debts. In the year of Jubilee, all lands go back to the original owners. It is restored to them. Uh, and all of this was to magnify an attribute of God, the mercy of God, and the eschatological significance or end time significance is that there would be a time of rest and new creation. This, the way God set up his nation and his system, there was always a way of restoration and rest in the end. And Jubilee was a part of that, okay? And so they learned how to do this holy math. Well, in Daniel, it says there are 70 weeks of years, okay? Now remember, Dan why is Daniel praying? Because he's in exile and he realizes now through Jeremiah that exile was to last, what, 70 years. And so he is praying and hoping that these 70 years have done enough to bring about the true restoration of the nation of Israel. And he's about to find out, no, it's not long enough to do that. Matter of fact, it is going to be 70 times 7. All right, doesn't that remind you of something, by the way? How many times should we forgive? 70 times seven, right? And so do you remember? So there's all these sevens. So let me just address that for a minute, right? I've taught you this before. Seven is the number for what? Completion. Do you remember when I taught you about Nebuchadnezzar becoming a beast? And I wasn't so hard pressed on seven years because it really doesn't say years, it says seven times, right? And so I said, hey, I'm not going to be so dogmatic about the exact amount of time. What I'm going to tell you is that seven is the number of completion because we know that God created for six days and on the seventh day, he rested. Why? He was done and it was really good. And so it was complete. And I suggested to you about Nebuchadnezzar and the beast that I don't know if it was years or not. What I'm telling you, it was the complete amount of time it took for him to lift up his head and bow the knee to God, right? And so keep in mind, we're dealing with uh, the sevens, but he is saying, and so when it's talking about forgiveness, 70 times seven, you forgive as many times as it takes for true restoration, true forgiveness. And so... He is saying 77. So if we do the math, 70 times seven years is what? I'm not going to ask my mom. <laughs> she should have known that was coming because she always says she can't add two and two. She doesn't know where I got it, right? Some of you right now are 70 times, 490 years, right? 490 years for this prophecy to be complete, 
is what it is saying, okay? And so Daniel is hoping that the redemption of Israel is close. He is remembering the prophecy of Jeremiah. Um, but we know uh, that they will return as Jeremiah prophes prophesied, but he is finding out that it's not going to be enough time for the true redemption of Israel. And as far as the Jubilee year too, I also want you later on, you can go to 2 Chronicles 36, 21-ish in there. You can read around there. Part of the reason that they are in exile is because they did not obey the rules of Jubilee. They did not let the land rest and trust God for their sustenance. They were burdening the land and beating the land to get what they wanted and abusing it. And so it talks about that during the exile, the land actually got to rest. Okay, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, okay, so I want to begin by asking a really important question as we go into verse 24. Who is this prophecy for? Look at verse 24. Do you see the phrase when it says, 70 weeks are determined upon what? Thy people and upon thy holy city. So this prophecy is for the people of Israel, about your people and your holy city. There will be seven sevens or 490 years are given to Israel to make straight the road for their Messiah, for redemption, the redemption of Israel, because that's what he's talking about, the restoration, okay? And so it then goes on to say, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up this vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. It's going to take 490 years to do that. Okay, so this first verse tells us what is going to be completed in 490 years. So let's talk about some of those things. Because I'm going to suggest to you, and I have to teach it to you from my bent, I don't know how else to do it. And then I'm going to tell you at the end I might be wrong. And then I'm going to tell you other thoughts and you can go investigate those. But I don't have time to teach you the details of every thought of this. That's why I didn't want to teach Daniel. And so... We're going to look at, I believe this prophecy is completed in Jesus. That's what I believe. Jesus and the destruction of, of the temple in 70 AD. Um, that is, that's what I believe. So many people struggle at this when we look at what it was intended to fulfill, to finish transgression, the end of sin, make re reconciliation for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. In their mind, they still see how could that possibly be completed in Jesus when we live in the world that we live in today. And I understand that. So there is an idea of, yes, it is, but there's more to come. And I can live with that. But I want to show you why I think it is, or it was, in essence, completed in Jesus. So let's look at it. Finish transgression. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today. So get those. We're going to do sword drills. Do you remember that? No, some of you are too young. Uh, where they'd call out, do you remember that in Sunday school? They'd call out a verse and see who could get to it first. And I'm a three, so I'm competitive. I wanted to get to it first. So finish transgression, 1 John 3, 4. Look at that. 
This one's a hard one because it's small and it's in the end. First John chapter three, verse four. I think I'll just read from three. I love this verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I, I love this verse. It's just a side note. It has nothing to do with what I'm about to tell you. Um, I love the fact that when you say to young people, these false standards that the world puts on us for perfection, right? Um, and we strive so hard to live those out, like we can be perfect or like we can be all of those things they place on us. I always tell them, do you realize that they saw, the world actually saw perfection looking at them in the face and what did they do with it? They crucified it. Why are you striving to meet the false expectations of the world to be uh, whatever the world thinks you should be? They literally looked perfection in the face and they crucified him. And what this is saying, if they don't truly understand who Jesus was, how in the world are they going to recognize you? Because you're a child of God. That's just a little side sermon for you today. And if that's the only thing you remember, good. Okay. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What does that say? We're God's children now. Now, what that's going to look like has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, here's the verse I want you to see. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to what? Take away sins and in him there is no sin. So I'm going to suggest to you that when Jesus died and rose again from the, uh, from the dead, what did he do? He took away sin right? Okay. Now look at Galatians 3.25. I'm going to read 23 through until I feel like stopping. Genesis 3. I mean, Genesis. Galatians 3. <clears throat> now before faith came, this is verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Do you remember what I told you the year of Jubilee did? When the trumpet was, it set the captives free, right? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, so he removed what? Sin, the penalty of sin, it is removed. Our slate was wiped clean, and we receive that by faith in him. Look at Isaiah 53, 5. I'll read 4 through 6, because I just love that whole section. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for what? Our transgressions, sin. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are what? We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So for me, when I look at this uh, prophecy being wrapped up in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can see when he claimed it, the debt is paid, it is finished. I can see that it is the finishing of transgression, okay? It also says the end of sin. So the finishing of transgression, the end of sin. Look at Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What is that saying? If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have what? We identify with Jesus. This is baptism, isn't it? With his death and resurrection. I have died to sin. What does that mean? Well, that, that means I see it correctly. I see what it cost him. I identify that. So I realize that my standing, I have died to sin. Now, am I still wrapped in this flesh that wants what it wants in this battle? Yes, but I don't give in to it. Why? I've died to it. And so I don't just keep sinning like it's nothing so that grace abounds, right? I'm going to battle it. It's about the struggle of it. And that's why Paul says of all people, why do I keep doing the things that I hate? And I fail to do the things that are right. Because he knows that his position is that he has what? Died to sin. All right. And so it then goes on to say, okay, that by this time, we will finish transgression. There'll be an end of sin and make reconciliation for iniquity. Look at Hebrews 2.17. I know this is intense. There's no other way I know how to do it. Hebrews 2.17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, only God could save you, but only humanity could take your place. He was both. He was God in flesh. And because he became flesh and he experienced all that we do and he remained sinless and he died on the cross, he then can make reconciliation for iniquity on our behalf. You also see that if you remember in uh, Daniel 7's vision, remember? There he was, one like the Son of Man, a human one that would be the representative that was being trampled over, but would be carried on the clouds to the Most High God, and to him would be given dominion and the kingdom forever as the representative of true Israel, the true people of God. And that opens up a can, but you know what I mean. Okay, so he was our high priest. He put on flesh so that he could make reconciliation between God and humanity. Uh, Romans 3.25. 
I'll start with 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the verse. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness as the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, and that, that's going to continue to be explained in this next part. The fact that he is going to make reconciliation for iniquity. He is going to reconcile man to God by what he did at the cross. Then it says he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. The cross reestablishes us to right relationship. It makes us sons and daughters. It makes us once again the image bearers of God. Look at Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. First John, I'm just going to read these to you. First John 1.9. You can just write them down if you don't want to look. First John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness, right? Remember what righteous means? To be in right relationship. John 1, 12. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Okay, so I believe that in the death and in Jesus Christ, we saw all those things fulfilled. Will we see them come into fruition in front of our eyes at a later date? Yes, we will. But I still feel that what happened when he said it is finished, I think the cross was the finish of transgression. I think it was the end of sin. And I think it made reconciliation for iniquity. And I think it brings in an everlasting righteousness because the cross puts me in an everlasting right relationship with God. That's what I see. Now, can I understand how by the eye it, it's, we don't see that playing out. Yes, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some more things later because I believe when Jesus declared some, declares something, it is at the moment he declares it before we even see it. So I'm going to use as an example, Matthew 26, when he said, from this moment, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see the death and resurrection is my exaltation, but you will also see my vindication when I come in judgment and there's the destruction of the temple. But he is saying from this moment, he spoke it, guess what? It's done. It will be. So that's the way I look at this because I believe in a 490 year period. And you're going to see later that there are those who will put a parenthesis of time in between the uh, 69th year and the 70th year. And that parenthesis of time is still about, at this current time, it's about 2,000 year gap. 
I don't see that precedented in Scripture, and I don't see that uh, Daniel would have known that either, so I struggle with that a little bit. So he says, so 490 years will seal up the vision and prophecy. 490 years is what it's going to take to seal up this prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And I believe we see that in Daniel chapter 7, when he is seated at the right hand of God, he is anointed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. I think that's what they're talking about in Matthew. Um, The word anointed typically is reserved for high priest, kings, and prophets, and the Messiah, all three. He was the high priest, he is the king, and he was the prophet that Moses talked about that would come after him. He is all three of those things. So verse 25 now, so let's, it says uh, in, in Daniel chapter 9, okay, we're back there. We've done 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Remember the question, is 70 years going to do it? And what did he say? No, actually, it's not going to do it for the restoration of your people. Actually, it's going to be 70 times 7. 490 years will be for the restoration um, of Israel, okay? Then 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troubled times. Okay. So it says, so know this, that from the going forth of what? The commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, that seems like it would be so easy. Okay. But it's not. It's actually difficult. Because I'm going to tell you why. There are actually four going forth announcements that deal with the rebuilding of Jerusalem or the temple or the walls. Let me just give them to you, okay? Um, There is one, the first one, being when Cyrus, the Persian king, authorized the rebuilding of the temple. That would have been between 539 and 536 B.C., Some of you don't care about this. Some of you do. I'm going to give it to you anyway, because if you even go put your nose in any of this information, this is going to be helpful to you to understand. And you will read about this going forth in Ezra 1, 1 through 4. And to be honest, it's mind-blowing. The fact that this Persian king would hear from the God of heaven and make this announcement to the Jewish people to not only go home, but rebuild their temple and fund it. Unbelievable, right? But then in 519 BC, King Darius reconfirms Cyrus's decree because it had gotten janky. And you can read this in Ezra 6, 1 through 12. And if that's not enough, then Artaxerxes... In the seventh year of his reign, restored the Jewish government. And that was in 458 to 457 BC. And you can read what he had to say in Ezra 7, 11 through 28. 
And lastly, there was a fourth one. Artaxerxes does it again, but this time in the 20th year of his reign. And he, this is a decree to rebuild the walls around. Do you remember what it said? You will rebuild the temple. You will rebuild the streets and the walls. Okay, that is in 445 to 444 BC. And that can be read about in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Now, <laughs> if you don't know this section, these sections of scripture, it could get, is it not so confusing? Okay, but let me remind you of your intertestamental period, okay, or, or right before what, what's happening, okay? You remember there's a united kingdom in Israel at one point under Saul. Yes, we all got that? Before that, they were tribal. They lived according to tribe, and they had tribal leaders. And at that time, judges would rise up, and they would go enforce the law, but it was all handled according to tribes. They were tribal. Then they came together, they came to Samuel and said, this isn't working for us, we need a king. It was a slap in the face of God. But God said, give them what they want. They have no idea what they're asking for. I've been their king all along. I'm not the unfaithful one. They are. But okay, give him a king. But if you get a king, that king's going to build an empire and he's going to build an empire with your money on your backs with your kids because he's going to build an earthly empire and he's going to have to defend it. And it's costly. But give it to him. And so he gave him Saul. And Saul united the tribes into a nation, the nation of Israel. And Saul blew it. And then there was David. David had a heart for God. He didn't look much better than Saul, but I'm going to tell you what. He had a heart that was quick to repent to God. All right? He loved God. And he held them together as a nation. And then after David, who was it? Solomon. And Solomon started with that kind of heart, and he was into women, and they led his heart astray. And he shared his heart among other gods, and he got the nation in a pickle because he kept the taxes high, and that, that's no bueno. And so at the end, they divided. You remember this? Okay. And then you have the northern 10 tribes of Israel called Israel, and you have the southern two tribes that are called Judah. And you know what happened? If I taught you the motions back in the day, I would have said Assyria, I mean, yeah, Assyria, Israel scattered. So the Assyrian king came in um, and he scattered the 10 northern tribes of Israel, crushed them, scattered them all over the known world. But they didn't get Jerusalem because at the time there was a good king, Hezekiah, and God protected Jerusalem. And so, but then the Babylonians rose up, conquered the Assyrians. And so then, so it's Assyria, Israel scattered, Babylonia, Judah. So now we grab up the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin and we go exile. We throw them into exile. Now they're in Babylon. How long? You know this. 70 years. Okay. Then Persia, so we keep going down the way, Persia, scoop up Judah, Judah returns. This is what we're talking about. The Persians let the Israelites, let the Jewish people return to Jerusalem. But it's not that simple because there are lots of caravans happening. Okay, so it's Persia, Judah returns. Well, the first group came with Zerubbabel because Cyrus said they could come home. And they rebuilt the temple. And then there was, uh, so it is uh, Zerubbabel, temple, 
Then there's Esther who saves their lives, queen. Ezra, he comes and he creates a revival amongst the people, their hearts. They read the law. They're trying to reestablish Jerusalem and they, they haven't even had a revival. He finds the scrolls, he reads the law and they are broken and they start to cry. Now they're motivated, right? And then comes Nehemiah who rebuilds the walls. After that, there is 400 years of what? Silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These coincide with that. So what I'm telling you, it's hard to, it would have been hard for the people to determine when, which date to use for when it came forth to rebuild the temple. Because I just gave you four shots at it, okay? But I'm gonna make it mean something. It goes on to this, say this, from that point, we're gonna hold that lightly, there shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. You're like, holy cow, right? But some of you have the cheat sheet called the New American Standard or the NIV, and it explains it a little more. So it's saying this is what's got to happen before the Messiah comes. There's going to be seven weeks, which is seven times what? Seven, which is 49 years to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, which that is true. Okay, it was rebuilt in that amount of time, either way. Then there will be three score plus two years, or in other words, 60, score means 20. So three twenties plus two is 62, all right? So there's gonna be 49 and 62 before the Messiah arrives on the scene. So in other words, 69 weeks or 483 years. Write that down. That's what it means. And almost no one disagrees on that. Okay. It is seven weeks or seven times seven. So 49 years plus 62 weeks, which is 434 years, a total of 483 years before the, the presenting or the coming of the Messiah. That is what they would have expected. Okay, 483 years. So let me read it now to you again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troubled times. So we know that within the 69 weeks or 483 years, there is an expectation of the coming of the Messiah because that's what it says. All right. So, but here's what I want to suggest to you a little bit. Let me read to you 26. Okay. And then I'm going to go back and make a point. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not by, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So in this scenario, it says that after the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. But then it says this, 
that the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. So I am suggesting to you that no matter when you start the uh, word to rebuild the temple, it doesn't really matter because the point is that the Messiah must come before what? In my perspective, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70. Either way, that Messiah has to come before the destruction of the second temple. I will tell you one reason I think that is important. Every ounce of genealogy the Jews had was in that temple. Every record they had of tribes and families and ancestry in that temple. Do you realize that if someone came today and stepped up to claim to be the Jewish Messiah, that they would have no genealogical records proving what tribe he came from? And we know he came from the tribe of what? Judah, from the family or the kingship of who? The royal family of David, right? We have all of these prophecies in scripture that needed to be checked uh, to have an accurate Messiah. And do you know all of those records were in that second temple? There is no way that someone could step forward with evidence today showing that they are all of those things. In this timeline, it is saying no matter when that word came out, whether it was Cyrus, whether it was Darius, whether it was Artaxerxes, the fact is that the Messiah showed up on the scene before the destruction of the second temple. And I will tell you that unless uh, that both... Um, a literal view that I'm taking or a dispensationalist view um, of the whole rapture, we all agree on that. That after 69 years, there was the Messiah would come on the scene and be presented. All right. And so now it's almost over and I'm not even near. Um, Okay, I'm going to skip to a thought at the end, and then I'm going to come back and keep teaching it to you. It's a good place to talk about it. So realizing that, Daniel is praying, Lord, has it been enough time? It's almost over. It's time for Israel to come back. Has 70 years been enough time to deal with the sin in the heart of the nation of Israel? And the answer was what? No, it's not. The fact is they will be brought back home in 70 years, but it's not going to be a scene of restoration because we know what's going to happen. There's going to be a parade of beasts. Are you with me? And so it's not just going to be Persia and then it's over. It's going to be the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, okay? Um, and so, no, it, it, it's not enough time. Matter of fact, it's going to be 70 times 7. We know, according to this, that this timeline, and think how scary this timeline is for him. It's not going to be 70 years. It's going to be 490 years. And in those 490 years, you're hearing about the Messiah coming and then he's going to be cut off. And then the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and offerings and sacrifices will cease. That's the, that is the, it, your entire religious system is going to come to an end. I mean, this is, um, this is shocking. But they are hearing that after 483 years, the Messiah is going to present himself. 
Do you realize that historians like Josephus and various other ones say that there was a, an essence in the day, there was a thinking in the time of Jesus, that it was becoming the time for this religious political leader that Daniel spoke about to come onto the scene because they had been watching this kind of timeline. So it's not shocking to me that the wise men from that area, which, do you remember who Daniel was? He was the king or the leader of the wise men. And so he would have been dealing with this timeline and this speculation along with the fact that those wise men watched the stars and they saw something happen. Um, they believed uh, astrologically that a star of a king. But it was all in this time. And they come looking for this religious political leader that is going to rise up. I think it's also the essence in Luke, I think too, where Simeon and Anna ask God, uh, or Simeon asked God, don't let me die before I see him. There's an expectation that the time is ripe right now for this coming one. I mean, think about it. They were given a timeline and they have been following this timeline. And if you think about it, I mean, the birth of Christ, if they kind of had where the 483 years had fallen, they know that someone goes into ministry or, or, or rises like a, a rabbi or a priest at about the age of 30. So you take 30 away from where you think the 483 would be, and maybe he's being born about this time. No wonder when John the Baptist showed up on the scene because most people, even if you take it uh, the timeline from, the, from Cyrus, the very first one, or you take it from Artaxerxes, you're going to end up somewhere in AD 29 and 30, they say. That's about the time. No wonder they were pressing John the Baptist. Are you the one? Who are you? Who are you? Are you this one? Or how about when Jesus got so irritated at the Pharisees and he said, really? You can determine the weather. You can look at the sky and you can tell if it's going to rain and you can determine all these things and you can't figure out the signs of the time. The fact that right now you can almost feel the expectation bubbling because according to the timeline that Daniel was given, it's about that time that this Messiah would rise up. And so it's very interesting he has given this timeline. Now this is where it gets tricky and this is where we'll go next week. Is the 70th week, just in chronological order with the 69th, and all of what we're going to see is fulfilled in Jesus, that he is cut off mid-week uh, of that last week. And, and we're going to look at all that and see, is it continuous and was it completed at the death and resurrection of Jesus? And then ultimately, we see his vindication in the destruction of the temple. Or after the 69th week, somewhere in there, we have to put in a parenthesis because we feel like this is talking about a future prince or antichrist and a future ceasing of the offerings and the sacrifices and a future tribulation to come. That is, that is the question. Now, I'm going to tell you that I, I believe in the consecutive years, the literal 
view of that. I, I just... I just think it fits. And I think that we, in, we put the parentheses in there because we come to the scripture with that eye. And when we look at Matthew 24 and what Jesus said to his disciples about the end of the age, we misinterpret that, which then affects Daniel. And so I don't know. But what I do know is this. At the end of the day, if my faith is in Christ Jesus, I win. Because I am a child of God, and I believe that his death and resurrection paid for my sin and made me that child of God, and I believe in the eternal salvation and security of the saints. I believe in once saved, always saved. I believe that. I don't believe there's a big eraser up there that when we screw up, that they erase your name out of the, of the Lamb's book of life. I don't believe that there is a, a party when you come to know Jesus and then when you screw up that it sounds like this in heaven. Ah, oh, oh, she blew it again. I do not believe that. I believe we are secure in Christ Jesus and it is a battle. And so, um, and, and that can get a little, a little hairy too. And so none of this scares me. I come back to the fact I am still waiting for Jubilee. I'm waiting to hear the trumpet sound. And when we hear the trumpet sound, I am waiting just to see that restoration that I can see with my eyes where we have true Sabbath rest and peace on this earth when all debts have been paid and all that we lost has been given back because of the mercy of God. And so I don't want you to get wiggy about the end times because remember what he says, I hear your prayers. I hear them. And I heard it before it ever got on your mouth. And even before I'm going to give you this timeline, I want you to know you are greatly loved. And because of that, we should be at peace in Christ Jesus. Amen? We're not done. But do you at least understand a little bit of what these 70 weeks are? We're not even to the hard part yet, but yes? Uh-huh. Any, any question about just those two verses that we covered for a solid hour? Yes. Okay. Taylor said she'll post all those verses online if you want her to. Yes, in the back. No, Good. that's a great question. Um, the God promised through uh, Jeremiah that they would be in physical exile in Babylon for 70 years. But what Daniel doesn't understand as according to the heart or the nation of Israel to God, even when they come home, they're gonna remain in exile, okay? Because they're going to be oppressed by other nations. Uh, this is not going to bring the great restoration that they have in their mind, um, coming back from exile and being restored. And so it's talking about this physical exile. So God didn't change his mind. His plan was that they would be in Babylon for 70 years, and they were. They came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the city. But what he is saying is that's not really going to deal with the heart of Israel. 
It's going to take much longer for the restoration that Daniel is truly praying and hoping for. This time is not going to be enough time to deal with the sin problem, the heart problem that lies in Israel. Matter of fact, the only thing that's going to deal with that is after 490 years that the true representative Israel comes and lays down his life. So remember the big story. Remember, Adam was commissioned to bring the kingdom of heaven to the earth and he failed. After Adam, and we see how he failed because we got to Babylon, to Babel. After that, God picks a man by the name of Abram, makes him into his nation. He calls him his firstborn, his holy nation, the nation of priests. And in covenant relationship with God, they were supposed to bring that blessing to the world. And how have they done? They failed. And matter of fact, we looked back, if you remember, and in Matthew uh, 26, he is basically telling them, Jerusalem has become what? Babylon. You're the beasts because you have built an empire, a religious one, and you've done it on the backs of the people and the innocent. And so the son of man now, has shown up, that son of man, the one like man, but divine. And how is he going to do it? He's being trampled over by the beast, but he's going to lay down his life. And when he does, he is going to then be exalted to the right hand of power. It's the picture of the resurrection to where he sits. And it is the end of the Jewish religion because he is telling them he is the temple. He is the perfect sacrifice. And so they will see his vindication when the Romans, because the, the road they're on, they've missed the kingdom, the true kingdom and the true Messiah. And the road they're on is going to make them clash right into the Romans because they're trying to build an earthly kingdom. And their, their city and their temple is going to be destroyed. And their religion, honestly, will be no more. And that is what this is saying. In the end, Yes, I'm going to bring restoration. The Messiah will come. But when he does, he will be cut off. And then you see the, the ending of the religious system of the Jewish people because Jesus is the temple. Remember, he said, destroy this temple. And in three days, what? I will raise it up again. John the Baptist looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is our high priest that is acquainted. He is the fulfillment of all the law. And now we are waiting during this church age to, of the growth of the kingdom of God. We are waiting for the return of the king to restore. And so he didn't change his mind uh, because the exile, physical exile would last 70 years and it did. But Daniel's longing for something that it's not ready for. What you're longing for, Daniel, you, it will not happen for 490 years. Yeah. Yes. 83, 483. Because it says that from the time of the going forth of the rebuilding of the temple to the time of the Messiah will be seven weeks plus three score plus two. So seven weeks is 49 years, okay? That coincides with the building of the temple and all that, okay? When they get back, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, all that. Um, 49 years plus three score plus two, which is 62 weeks, 400, and, what did I say? 
400 and no, the total's 483. I, you would think I'd have this memorized since I've done it 100 times. 34, thank you. So it's 49 years plus 434, then the Messiah. So that's 483 years. Yeah, because then there's one more week, right? And so seven more years, which gets us to 490 years. I need a whiteboard up here, don't I? Yeah. All right, so fun question and answer, because I know it's, it's confusing. <laughs> if you go online and you see all the charts and all that stuff, I will tell you this, in America, you will see predominantly more of the dispensational, you'll see the parentheses. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that next week. Um, you'll see mostly that timeline. Um, so anyway, let's pray. Did you learn anything? I just want to know that. It's, it's kind of... It's very painful to teach. I'm just going to tell you. Some of the smartest people I know avoid teaching this book because of this reason. And 10 doesn't get any better. Chapter 10. It's just so, here we go. I don't know. And maybe it will excite you. Maybe you'll leave and I'll have 30 people by the end. It's okay. They stuck with me for the first six chapters of stories. Okay. But this is hard stuff. It really is. But you know what? I, I have peace about it because I like the fact God knows what he's doing. He's got a plan and he sticks to his plan. Um, and you asked me a good question about God changing his mind. I like that question because do you realize that this is all free? It's not good. I don't know if I'll put it on video, maybe. Um, but if you need to leave, just get up and leave. It won't bother me but I don't want to jip you. When, when you talk about God changing his mind, here's a good example. You, you know in scripture where it talks about the flood and it says that God was grieved that he made man? That word actually is the word repent. When you look at that, then you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Does God repent? What does his repentance is different than our repentance? When we repent, we turn away from what we believe and we face God and we acknowledge what he, that's not what repentance is to God. He is not, he is not changing his will. He is changing the means to accomplish his will. And so his will is to fulfill his promise. So in Genesis 3, he determined that a redeemer was coming and he keeps his promises so when now mankind ends up in this situation where they are so violent that he is grieved or repents that he made man, he's not changing his will or his plan of redemption, but he changes the means by which he accomplishes it. And so at that point then, right, he starts over with Noah and his family. Why couldn't he, why couldn't he annihilate everybody? He made a promise that through the family of Eve, through humanity, there would come redemption. And so he calls out to Noah and Noah listens to the word of God and receives him by faith. He builds the ark and he is saved basically in Christ Jesus. And so you will see along the scriptures how God does not change his will of redemption or salvation or his plan of redemption. 
but he may along the way change the means by which he accomplishes it. Because keep in mind, he is operating in his sovereignty, but he is doing it without removing the free will of man. Wow. Right? The more you study the Bible, the more you realize how deep and complicated and mysterious it is and how dumb you are. Like, I, you know, I mean, because I will sit and listen to things that would make your eyes cross because I love it. And then you just go, they'll bring up stuff and you go, I am an idiot. I don't know anything about that right there. But you never, you never have too much like you can study for the rest of your life. It's so exciting. If you are like me and, and in your free time, you like murder mysteries because you want to know who done it. There is no greater mystery or detective thing that you could do than study the Bible. You can never get to the end of it until one day we will be like him. And then what a glorious day that'll be. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you for the fun we have as we walk through even the most difficult scripture. Literally the most debated scripture, three verses most debated in the Bible. Lord, I love you. I'm your child. You're not going to leave me. <laughs> if I go through hard times, you will be with me. And if you want to bring me to yourself, you will. And so I can trust you. At the end of the day, I trust you. And if I go through hard times, Lord, I pray that even in those, you will use me to grow the kingdom because one day we will be celebrating together and we'll be singing songs that are familiar to us and we will be speaking language that is familiar with us, family language, and we will be having dinner together and uh, we will be literally at the table with you, our groom. And so I look forward to all of that. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.